Hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Theory Lab podcast. I'm Joe Cotter of the American Cancer Society's Research Department, joined by the good Dr. Susanna Greer. You feeling okay, Susanna? I'm awesome, Joe. How are you? I'm good. I had cake, 50 cups of coffee. Uh, it's November. It's Lung Cancer Awareness Month. So who do we have today? We have someone who's a leader in the field of cancer health disparities, internationally recognized for her tobacco research, Dr. Monica Webb-Hooper. She's director of the Office of Cancer Disparities Research in the Case Comprehensive Cancer Center at Case Western Reserve University, Cleveland Winters. She's also professor of oncology, family medicine, and community health and psychological sciences. So what are we going to learn from her, Susanna? Hey, Joe. So Monica was so helpful. Um, First of all, she just kind of level sets with me on, uh, let's just talk about disparities in general, right? I think I, I enjoyed her clarification around what are disparities, how are they impactful in cancer prevention, and then you go a layer lower than that. And there are all these different things, of course, that impact disparities. So where you live, how much money you have to live there, how you identify uh, your sexual orientation, your race. I mean, all these things. I mean, it's it's super complicated. And so on the flip side of that, it, it should be pretty obvious, um, but it's not to most of us, that the interventions that would be impactful to one individual might not be for another. So Monica has done some just really, really impressive research around just listening, right? When you listen to the needs of a community, how does that impact their engagement in healthcare? And then how does that impact the disparities um, that, that they are impacted by? And then she goes on to talk to us about when we're thinking about tobacco use and tobacco cessation, we all have different reasons that we perhaps use tobacco and different reasons we might quit. And she had some really cool things to share about stress and how different groups of folks deal with stress. And so we would think then that if there are differences there, there ought to be differences also in the interventions that help them and that then might lead to different impacts and being able to quit smoking. So she is just amazing. She's done such fantastic work and and I loved, loved, loved hearing about what she's doing now and most importantly, why she's doing it. So I think you're going to love this conversation. I love, love, loved it too. So thanks, Dr. Monica Webb-Hooper, everybody. Good morning, Monica. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. We are so excited to talk to you today. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for asking. I'm excited. All right. So we are going to talk today about inequalities in access to cancer care. And I think there's some really good news in this space. We've had some huge improvements in the way we treat cancer and screen and um, lower rates of smoking and all of these things have contributed to a decline in cancer deaths. Um, But as you're going to share with us, we have a lot more to do, especially around inequalities. You're going to use some words today that I'm not sure we're all 100% familiar with. So can you just explain the term disparities to us? What does it mean to you when we think about um, cancer prevention? 
you know, I think this is a great place to start this type of conversation on cancer disparities because I do find that the term disparities is used quite widely, and I think at times it's actually not used appropriately. So the word disparity in and of itself means difference. But when you add the term health in front of it or referencing another type of health disparity, the meaning changes a bit. So health disparities are not only a difference, but a particular type of health difference. And the key is that these are differences that are closely linked with social, economic, or and or environmental disadvantage. And health disparities in particular adversely affect groups of people who have experienced obstacles systematically to health. And they may be defined in a number of ways. So biracial ethnic group is probably the most common way but disparities, health disparities, it transcends race or ethnicity. We also can find and have observed disparities as it relates to socioeconomic status, uh, gender, sexual minorities also experience disparities, mental health conditions, various forms of disability, um, geographic location, and other characteristics. But the key is that these are differences that should not exist and that are historically linked to discrimination or exclusion. Okay, so that's a lot. Um, okay, so I love the way that you defined it for us. So now we understand that disparities are differences um, around health that are impacting groups of people. And, and I love what you said that they shouldn't exist. So if we take that as a, a launch pad and understanding the complexity of disparities, one of the things that I think you've carved out a really interesting space for yourself is that you really are in a place of listening and trying to understand how different individuals who, who are impacted by disparities, um, how can we help them to overcome them? So I guess my question is, how does listening to the needs of a community member, how can it change the way they might um, either overcome a disparity or engage in healthcare and in a healthcare system? Yes, right. It's another great question. So listening is a key component to engaging individuals with the healthcare system in an active way so that they're not just passive participants in the healthcare system or so that they don't avoid the healthcare system altogether. And I think that's an area that we really need to focus on. One thing our cancer center has completed that we're extremely proud of is a community listening tour where our goal was to do just that. We have an amazing community advisory board here at Case Comprehensive Cancer Center, and they recommended that we listen and that we actually uh, develop priorities around community-identified needs. One of those needs was trust, and um, our community advisory board members astutely detected that there is mistrust or distrust in healthcare and in research particularly in our most disenfranchised neighborhoods around the city. And so we conducted a listening tour where we went with the intent of understanding community needs, their perceptions, desires, experiences, and all in such a way to understand factors that impact trust. And I think uh, we've recently published those findings, and I think what we learned, um, among other things, was that we really do need to listen and then turn that listening into actionable steps that the healthcare systems can take to improve the experience of groups, all groups, and that would be what we define as health equity. But to do that, we have to address these disparities. Oh, I love that. So if your goal then is to, to listen, to really listen, which is a challenge for all of us, but especially when we think we already know what the answers are, but to turn some 
your active listening into real steps, into an action plan. So I think I, I'd love to talk about steps that you have taken around um, specific behaviors. Maybe we could first talk about tobacco. So thinking about the conversations that we've just had around defining disparities, around the listening that you have done to the community, um, why do you think it's so important to address tobacco-related health disparities? And maybe how has your listening driven your findings? So tobacco use remains our number one public health problem. And it's our leading cause of preventable disease and death in this country. So although we have had major successes when we think about the declines in tobacco use, I mean, we are, we are at an all-time low since tobacco use has been being recorded at about 13 14% of the country. But that number, if you break that number down and look at it by uh, different characteristics, you'll find that there are still high smoking rates in a number of populations. And we also know that, you know, there are multiple populations in the United States who suffer disproportionately from various tobacco-related diseases. And these groups, again, can be characterized by race, ethnicity, sex, sexual identity, disability, socioeconomic status, and geographic location. So it remains an important focus. And much of my work focuses on racial ethnic minorities and low socioeconomic status groups. And um, so I focus quite a bit on African-Americans. And part of the reason that this remains a priority population is because this is the group that suffers the greatest burden from not only various cancers, but other chronic illnesses that are also tobacco related. And we also know that a significant proportion of health disparities, of racial ethnic health disparities, could be eliminated if tobacco use was properly addressed. So African-Americans suffer the greatest overall cancer burden, heart disease, stroke, infant mortality, and many others. So I've focused quite a bit on how we can address tobacco use, and we've started that work by listening, by understanding what the needs are of this group and of others, and so that we can develop interventions that are culturally and community responsive. Okay, so thinking about that burden and the fact that as you said, the African-American population is suffering the greatest burdens. And if we could address their tobacco use, we could decrease the burden, decrease the disparities. Um, one of the things that, that you've looked at are, are factors um, associated with tobacco smoking and relapse. And one of those is stress. I would love for you to share with us your insights around how different racial and ethnic groups have different stress responses and how that impacts tobacco cessation, for example. Right, great. So stress is important as we think about tobacco. And I have thought quite a bit about stress exposure and how they relate to tobacco disparities. In general, smokers say that Stress is a major reason that they smoke. Why do you smoke? Well, because it helps me manage my stress. Why do you have a hard time quitting? Well, because I'm really stressed and so I need a cigarette. But we found that global stress has been the major 
way that we've understood how stress impacts tobacco use. But in my work, we've kind of looked at stress a bit more specifically and thought about how different groups experience stress in different ways and different kinds of stressors. And um, so we've looked at stress in the context of tobacco disparities because evidence suggests that groups who experience various forms of disparities have different kinds of stress. You might have financial strain and stress. You may have relationship stress, employment stress, and stress from factors such as discrimination and racism. And our understanding of these factors has had not previously been thought about in the context of addressing tobacco disparities, but we've been working in that area for uh, quite a while now, and we're continuing to learn more about those relationships. So we found, for instance, that um, among treatment-seeking smokers, that African Americans are at a disadvantage, beginning those treatments at greater levels of depressive symptoms and greater levels of global perceived stress, which I kind of conceptualize together as being a measure of distress. So self-reported, I feel like I'm overwhelmed by factors in my life. So starting out at that place and being at an elevated level of stress potentially has a negative impact on one's ability to be successful with quitting smoking. And we found this when we compare um, white non-Hispanics, Hispanics or Latinx participants, and African Americans. And so we have worked on interventions to try to address that. We've recently also published data showing that not only are there psychosocial stress differences, but that is being manifested physiologically. And there's a body of research looking at allostatic processes and just demonstrated that there's sort of a weathering of stress that African-Americans experience over time that is related to a number of disparities. Many of these are tobacco-related disparities. So what I mean by that is that there seems to be greater propensity for chronic repeated exposure to stress among, among racial minorities and for this stress to get under the skin. That means that, you know, there's sort of, it kind of predicts maintenance of smoking behavior and inability to quit, greater rates of relapse. And over time, if you can't quit, you're more susceptible to develop a tobacco-related disease. Oh, wow, that's fascinating. So African-Americans and minority populations, what you're saying is they're at a huge disadvantage because of greater distress. So that increase in chronic stress can lead to increased smoking behavior and then increases in all of the negative manifestations, but particularly we're thinking here about cancer. So using all of those things um, as kind of your motivators for making change, how might, could you give us an example maybe of how you would have a, a different intervention in different communities? So I'm a real uh, proponent of culturally specific interventions. And culturally specific interventions have also been characterized using other names. So you might hear of these as culturally sensitive or culturally competent or culturally informed interventions. But it really refers to a group of interventions that are designed specifically to address what we know about different groups empirically and even from anecdotal or emic experiences. So in my work with um, culturally specific interventions that we've developed for African Americans and also Spanish-speaking Hispanic smokers, what we found is that it's important that we integrate within the context of our evidence-based approaches, um, cultural factors, 
specific ethnic factors, language, geography, intergenerational images, and the concerns that we know exist among these groups. So as we're, if we're thinking about stress, we developed a culturally specific intervention um, for African-American smokers, and we talk about stress, and we talk about stress in an intervention with any smoker. But if it's culturally specific to this population, we talk about stressors that are unique among African-Americans. We talk about elevated rates of discrimination and racism that are, in fact, associated with tobacco use. People who have experienced discrimination at greater rates are more likely to be smoking. And that's actually irrespective of one's race and ethnicity, mm-hmm. but it's a variable that tends to come up more when you're talking to racial minorities and other disadvantaged populations. So we talk about that specifically in the, in the context of this intervention. We also talk about the use of alternative tobacco products. So African Americans are more likely to not only smoke menthol cigarettes, which we know are harder to quit, and the tobacco industry has pushed that agenda, but we also know that little cigars and blunt use are also more popular among African-American smokers. So in our interventions that are culturally specific, we're, we make sure to talk about these factors that we know to be important. Another example would be spirituality and religion, mm-hmm. which are important across groups, but we know that among African-Americans, this is particularly important. And, and so when we kind of tailor our discussion to this population, there's more of an emphasis on faith and religion, and particularly using that as a coping strategy and how to deal with the many stressors that one may experience on a daily basis. These sound fantastic. I mean, it, it sounds like you've made a real push for in your work to to have some real I don't know the word to use but some real tough conversations and then also to get real with the cultural interventions that are driving from that listening that you're doing um, and understanding the specific cultural group and the obstacles that they may face but you know one question I have is I mean these interventions all sound fantastic but how can we increase the chance that the folks who most need these interventions actually have access to them. Access is a huge concern. Um, and, you know, one of the criticisms, so I'm a clinical health psychologist, and one of the criticisms of clinical psychology interventions are that they tend to be face-to-face. We're therapists, so we see people face-to-face in as individuals and couples and in groups. And these interventions do have, by design, a more limited reach at the population level. It's only individuals who'd be interested in talking with someone in a therapeutic context. So one thing that I do think about quite a bit is how do we create a hybrid of the clinical psychology with the more public health approaches, which tend to be lower intensity interventions, but that can reach more people. And so I've been so fortunate, the American Cancer Society has funded a project that I'm currently conducting. It's called Project Free. And the goal of this is to really transform our culturally specific interventions Um, to a population-level intervention approach and understand if there's an added value of our culturally specific intervention to a population intervention, such as the state tobacco quit lines. So state tobacco quit lines are our best way uh, to reach smokers and deliver counseling in particular. And so we are working in this project to include our culturally specific intervention in a video format among individuals who are self-identified as African-American and who are enrolling in services through a state tobacco quit line. And so what we're, what we're testing, what we're finding already is that there's greater engagement um, when individuals receive our culturally specific video-based intervention as an adjunct to the care, the standard care that the quit line provides. And we'll be testing this project for another 
two years, but we're encouraged to understand that engagement, culturally specific engagement is making a difference. And so that's one example of how we can deliver these interventions to a larger number of people while still maintaining our face-to-face interventions because I think that having a range of options is available so that people who prefer to call a quit line can do that. People who prefer to have a mobile intervention, we've also recently transformed our culturally specific intervention into a mobile uh, a video text messaging format. And then individuals who'd prefer to come into therapy still have that option. Nice. So are you finding that your ability to increase engagement, that you can maintain that on something like a mobile app? Um, I I mean, it's got to be quite different from a one-on-one session with a therapist. You're right. It is quite different. And, you know, that's been one of my concerns about this sort of digitization of interventions, of behavioral interventions. And what many studies have found who've tested various mobile applications is that there is an engagement challenge. So people are much more engaged at the outset of that intervention. And if you're sending text messages or have an app with a program to follow for six or eight weeks, that what we find is that participation tends to wane. And it's not only in tobacco use, but it may be in other cancer-related risks such as weight um, or obesity interventions, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we are concerned about how we can increase engagement. We recently completed a pilot test of a new intervention that we call Path to Quit. It's a mobile health intervention where we've delivered a culturally specific video texting approach. And we compared that to the evidence-based National Cancer Institute text messaging program that's delivered in a standard way, standard text messaging that's called smoke-free text. It's a fantastic program, and it hadn't been tested among African-Americans to the extent that we think it should, and that's that work is underway, but we compared that to our newly developed culturally specific video text intervention, and we did find across our metrics greater engagement with our culturally specific intervention delivered via mobile um, be, through the cell phones. So we think that, that, that perhaps this, this attention to the unique needs of populations can also serve to increase engagement, and of course what we're ultimately interested in is Behavior change. Are we able to help people mm-hmm. quit smoking, you know, permanently and reduce the cancer burden? Huh. That's so exciting because it sounds like what you're doing is not only being impactful, but it's also scalable, um, which could, again, dial back to issues around disparities and health equities and, and, and finding folks who may respond to different therapies in different ways. Absolutely. Um, scalability is important. This is um, something that many researchers are thinking about, especially those who, like me, tend to develop interventions designed for face-to-face contact. We'd like those interventions to be scalable and to be able to be reached and for people to have access to them. You know, once we develop an intervention and we can confirm that it is effective or efficacious in a clinical trial, then our goal is to understand how we can best disseminate that information. And I think the interventions that we've worked on are disseminable in a number of ways, including, as I mentioned, the quit line, also the these can be, we have a website also where people in this uh, American Cancer Society funded project can view uh, the videos at any time. We also can deliver them via text message. Um, and I think we also are in, importantly engaging community-based organizations so they have access to these interventions as well. And I've connected with a wonderful national organization who is disseminating our culturally specific video. And so people can actually go there now and download that video mm-hmm. at no cost. Um, And so that's another way we can get these interventions out into the mainstream. 
So if someone's listening right now and is not um, at Case Western or, or near you, how, how might they find some of these interventions if they wanted to access them? Well, um, I think one way is our video-based intervention, our culturally specific video intervention is called Pathways to Freedom, Leading the Way to a Smoke-Free Community. And this intervention can be downloaded uh, through the National African American Tobacco Prevention Network or napton.org. And if someone were to go to the website, they would see that they have the opportunity to download the video and um, they'd be able to use it for educational purposes, for training purposes, and for uh, smokers who are interested in trying to become tobacco-free. Ah, that's fantastic. What a great group of resources. So before I let you go, I wanted you to just tell us a little bit about uh, the Tobacco Obesity Oncology Laboratory at Case Western Reserve. Um, maybe just share with us the, what are the goals of the program? Sure. So TOOL, or the Tobacco Obesity and Oncology Lab, is my laboratory here at Case Western Reserve University. And the mission of the lab is to provide and to deliver high-quality interventions to the community that address cancer risk behavior. So we are focused on tobacco use, obesity, and oncology, and we are conducting a number of studies, um, developing interventions and testing them in various populations so that we can decrease the cancer burden. And so individuals um, in the local community and for some of our projects that we are having, uh, that we're conducting at the state level, they're able to contact us and learn about the different projects that we're conducting. Um, we have a wonderful staff, a wonderful empathetic caring staff who helps guide the um, individuals to the program that may best fit their needs. And we're testing various interventions. Um, so one of the new ones that we're also excited about is in addition to our mobile intervention, we're testing a wearable sensor um, mm. that we'd like to add to that. We're working with our bioengineering team here at CASE to add a sensor so that people, um, when they seem to be gesturing towards smoking, we can deliver a message to them in real time. So this is just an example of, you know, where, where, the, where the tool lab is going and the kinds of things that uh, are forthcoming. Wow, that's incredible. Oh, I love it. And the ACS, we're so proud of you and excited to have been um, a small part of what you're doing. So I'd, I'd love to know, are there ways in particular that you feel ACS funding has impacted your career? Absolutely. The American Cancer Society has been um, extremely supportive of my work and of my career. So this project that we're working on now, Project Free, is a five-year project. It's at, when you think about the NIH, it's essentially an R01 level project. And this project has been essential in carrying my work forward and for even gaining attention to this kind of work um, and validating it, if you will, among people who may not be as familiar with the study of tobacco-related disparities or developing interventions for um, racial minorities who would like to become tobacco-free. And this is actually the second project that I've um, had funded through the American Cancer Society. The first one was a, a really cool study where we were testing a tailored intervention in general for the general population. And we were trying to understand psychological mechanisms that help understand who is um, most impacted in, in helping them to quit smoking from an, uh, an individualized or personalized tobacco intervention. And that was a, a really fun project that we were able to find um, interesting findings and publish them in the, in the scientific literature. Wonderful. Well, Monica, just one last question, and that is that um, many of our listeners are cancer patients or they are people who care for cancer patients. Um, is there a message in particular that you would like to share with these listeners? So I think my message for those listening and especially cancer patients and survivors is that this is a journey that 
we're all on with you, that our goal or my goal in particular is to sort of wrap my arms around those who are going through the journey and experiencing all the factors that come with having a cancer diagnosis. It's a big deal. It's life-changing. Many people fortunately experience post-traumatic growth from this experience. And importantly, when someone's going through treatment and even into the survivorship phase, the one thing that they really have control over is their own behavior. And that's something that we share with our tobacco, patient, our tobacco smokers who also are cancer patients, that when they're going through treatment, the doctors, the nurses are telling them, you have to have surgery, you have to come in for these treatments on these days for radiation or chemotherapy. But less attention is really given to tobacco use. And many patients try to quit smoking upon a cancer diagnosis, but a fair number actually exceeds the national average of persons who are diagnosed with cancer but continue to smoke. And so we also have programs and services in the cancer centers now, not only here at Case, but it's a national cancer moonshot effort to address tobacco use in oncology settings. It remains important. And if a person is continuing to smoke post-diagnosis and going through treatment, um, it actually will reduce the efficacy of their treatment. So to say that in a more positive way, quitting smoking during cancer care and beyond improves survival. It improves quality of life, and it provides a way to gain control over the experience. Huh, Monica, everything that you said has been so just uplifting, and you started our conversation by defining for me what listening meant to you. <laughs> you said that it was engaging in an active way, and I think that... Um, We've all very much appreciated um, the opportunity to engage with you. This is wonderful, and just best of luck to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.